Hey everybody, welcome to the Chainlink God podcast, where we break down the information asymmetry on all things blockchains, oracles, and smart contracts. Today we have a bit of a special episode where we're going to be discussing something pretty relevant uh, these days, the nature of inflation. And not necessarily just pointing out the obvious, you know, it's high, but discussing the ways in which it's calculated or manipulated, if you want to view it that way, and how inflation data can be brought on-chain in order to be used within smart contract applications, DeFi protocols, and some of the use cases that are enabled by that. And so who better to discuss this topic with uh, than the founder of Trueflation, Stefan Rust. Uh, just a little bit of background, Trueflation is a data provider focused specifically on offering unbiased data-driven inflation rates, and they are powered by Chainlink. So welcome, Stefan. How are you doing today? No, thank you for having me here and, and super excited to be on your show and and you taking the time out to to give us this airtime. So thank you. And I'm doing great. That's fantastic. So just to set some context uh, for listeners, could you provide a little bit of background on yourself, your expertise, you know, where you've come from, where you are, these types of things? Yeah, so I've been, you know, I, I've had a lot of expertise. I grew up through the mobile era um, and really growing the virtual machine, the Java virtual machine onto mobile phones, working through handset manufacturers as well as with mobile phone operators, and then driving open source software onto mobile operators and growing a revenue business associated with that with a great team at Sun Microsystems around the Java virtual machine. Um, throughout that, I started building out a huge network with developers. And, it, and when I left Sun in about 2007, I started building out a developer agency, helping a whole bunch of other handset manufacturers and operators build out their ecosystems and their own app stores to uh, work and provide alternatives to what you have in the Apple App Store. And throughout that, in 2012, one of the developers we were working with asked me to pay him in Bitcoin. And so I was looking at Bitcoin. What was that? There was a Bitcoin J wallet, which was in Java. And so I was comfortable with that. Downloaded that, bought some Bitcoin. At the time, it was $5. I wasn't thinking much about it, but um, just got involved, bought some on eBay using PayPal, pre it being banned and now it being allowed again. Um, but um, yeah, and so I didn't think much about it. I had it. I had it in, in my laptop. And one of the things is then six months later, or maybe nine months later, I then talked to that same developer and he said, okay, now you can pay me, right? And I was like, yeah, sure, I can pay you. The price had jumped to $300. So I was like, wow, oh my God, this is great. You know, I really got to look at this. And then I paid him over a Skype call in those days. I paid him via instantaneously, no fees at the time because Bitcoin wasn't clogged up. And to me, that was the most exciting thing ever from a payments perspective, not having to go to a bank branch, do your KYC, send out a hundred forms and pay a huge amount of, of, of fees to have a transaction settled um, over such a big ge geographical and then wait seven days in the terms of a fiat banking institution to remit those funds. And so I was sold, then started doing events, finding out about uh, all the different developers out there. Um, and then, in, yeah, and so that led up to me being the CEO of Bitcoin.com. So I got into Bitcoin.com, 
really grew that business to roughly now 29 million wallets out there today um, and, and really set the foundation together with an awesome team over there um, that are now running that business. But it wasn't until COVID hit when all this money was being printed and it's transitory. I just couldn't believe it's transitory. And so I felt we needed to find a greater source of truth associated with how inflation was calculated. I looked at inflation. It was calculated based on a framework that was developed in 1920. So pre-electricity being in every single household, pre-computers, pre-mobile phones, pre-the internet. And so all of that, how do we take a new approach to this and take a developer-led approach and actually aggregate real-time pricing and then put that on-chain in a Web3 environment? And so that's sort of what we set out to do. Um, and, and yeah, we launched that in December last year and, and lucky to really be partnering closely with Chainlink and, and we're super excited about the partnership that we have and the support they've given us throughout this. Um, so excited about that. Yeah, that's great to hear. I kind of, I've, I've kind of done, yeah. I think everyone's kind of gone down that similar rabbit hole of using the traditional system and then comparing yeah. it to the experience of using crypto. And then, you know, I, I did a, a wire payment a couple of weeks ago and my God, that, that was just painful <laughs> compared to the experience yeah. of, I mean, even Ethereum, but I mean, that, that experience <laughs> is just night and day different. So it, it's, it's I'm glad I'm not the only one here. Um, and it, yeah, it's, it's interesting uh, with inflation, yeah. I kind of want to dive a little bit more into that in terms of like, um, how do you guys calculate inflation compared to what the government uh, calculates it? Like, well, what's the fundamental difference there? So a couple of things. Right? One is we take real. So the, the the fundamental difference is they do a survey, right? So they go out and survey the market for pricing. Uh, they go to a couple of households and then they get the expenditure of those households. And that those households that they have in their survey is a representation of the nation's you know footprint. Um, and so they then extrapolate that and then build that out with a bit of a deviation. And that's their calculation. So we said, why are we doing that in this day and age when I have everything online and, and maybe 30, 35% of online of e-commerce is transacted online? How do we then capture that and how do we aggregate that? And that's a far more accurate and then a more real-time representation of what people really are doing online. And so we went to a number of sources and pulled them from APIs in real time. So for, for real estate, we go to Zillow and Trulia. We pull those data to get that data together. Uh, for food pricing, we go to a Nielsen and pull that data in. We go for real estate. We have, our, you know, I told you where we get that data from. Uh, we've then started to partner with bigger institutions um, like a Penn State to help us with the algorithm, how to identify and better optimize the calculations associated with real estate. And so we've had a really good relationship and partnership with them on, and they've done a lot of work in this with their whole curriculum. And you go to their websites, they've done a lot of research in real estate inflation calculations. And so we've worked with them to optimize that and then ultimately going down the road, we then get for each of the entities and items in the basket for the consumer pricing index, 
um, the household expenditure basket in terms of what are all the items that people are purchasing on a regular basis. Across all of those, we try to identify multiple sources and we include everything that's there. So we have maybe 60 to 70% of that whole basket. We have multiple sources of data for each of the items in that basket. And then we try to tr provide a transparency how we are weighting each of those items in that basket. Um, transportation, for example, is maybe roughly 18% of the expenditure, you know, household's expenditure. Rent, real estate is maybe 30 plus percent of the household expenditure. Food, what does that represent? Entertainment is usually around eight to 12%. So, and then we try to balance that out and then provide the optimum transparency in terms of how we do that calculation. And you can find that on app.truflation.com, how we break that down. Gotcha. Yeah. A lot of what you talk about here kind of reminds me a lot about how chain like Oracle networks are structured in terms of not relying on, relying on a single source of data, but rather aggregating data from across many different sources. So there is, you know, it's, it's not just more accurate, but actually is more resistant to tampering when you're not relying upon a single source for all this yeah. data. So I guess a question that kind of comes to mind is that if there is this method of more accurately tracking inflation based on real-time data rather than surveys, why isn't the official inflation metric tracked that way? Why is it still based on this older methodology? Which I kind of think I think I kind of know the answer, but I'd like to hear your, your perspective on it. Look, I, I, I can't really speak for them and why they do it the way that they do it. Um, I just find that there is a vertical integration in the workload that has that is called inflation today. So the government have their process, they have their network, they have their you know, legacy processes that they've done. And to change those just takes time, given the size and magnitude of the government. Number one, it is such an important metric to any economy, right? Salaries are based, adju adjusted according to inflation. Uh, interest rates are adjusted according to inflation. Monetary policies are across any economy is adjusted across inflation. So any change does have a significant impact and how to calculate any change that you are doing in your calculations has to be taken into account and has to be clearly separated. And I think it's always challenging to do that um, and how to identify what that impact of that change is and how to recalibrate in your mind, in all the formulas, in all the constituents across the whole ecosystem and the whole economy. What does that impact have and what is that calculation? And I think because of the legacy that is there, it's just a bit more challenging to adapt it. And that's sort of, yeah, uh, my view. I also think, you know, um, yeah, ultimately, I see personally, there are two types of, there are maybe three types of taxes, right? In a way, one tax is at the bank where you store your money and you have to pay them a fee to look after your money. Number two is the government, they print money and so ultimately our funds get diluted and inflation and that impacts us as a tax. And then there's the tax we have to pay to the government um, to support um, the community goods and, and infrastructure that we all hope that they uh, deploy those funds for. And 
Yeah, the inflation one is a big one, right? If it's a 12%, that's quite a huge number or versus the 7% that they report. Um, still a big number because it impacts the total money supply. Um, and so it's a huge number. Yeah, that makes sense. I remember having a small discussion with the Trueflation Twitter account that like there basically is those three. I mean, there's many forms of taxes, but like you get taxed when earning uh, money, you get taxed for holding money, inflation, and you get yeah. taxed for spending the money. And so the inflation is really like the hidden tax that exists, but it's like, you know, people say that it's you know X percent, but then clearly, you know, if you track these metrics more precisely, that it's not entirely accurate. So I think if, do you personally think that if people, do you see there being a large push that more and more people don't trust the official inflation metric? Do you think more and more people are going to start pushing for this more data-driven, more truth-oriented approach to calculating inflation? Do you think there will be like an inflection point at some point where many people are going to push for that? Or what, what, do you, what do you think is going to really kind of push for people to really demand a more accurate metric here? Well, I think sentiment, people we're talking to and after we've really announced the product and the feedback we're getting from the industry is people don't believe that inflation is only 7%, right? The gas pump tells you differently. The electricity bill you get in a month tells you differently. The purchasing, the value and the 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 size of your shopping basket when you come out of a supermarket is, is not as big for the same value um, when you go shopping for your essentials at home. And so people are realizing that. And over time, they're looking for an alternative. If that's not, it can't be 7%, it just doesn't add up. Where is an alternative? And if you provide an alternative, number one, and you provide transparency in terms of how you're calculating it and you're pulling it in, from reliable sources that people trust, then I, I think it's just a matter of time before number one, Wall Street see an alternative, the retail market see an alternative. And 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 so that's sort of really where we're hoping to really provide um, input. And then the crypto industry is already seeing that. And I think everybody in crypto land already believes that. Um, you know, we need an alternative uh, source of truth, a cryptographically verifiable source of truth. And that's what we're trying to provide. It's an alternative that people can believe, they can opt in on, and they may not believe, right? They can build products around this, or they don't have to. They can build products around the existing system. And, and that's all we're trying to provide. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think if from my perspective, inflation, I mean... I think first it kind of helps to kind of step back in a sense and kind of discuss uh, more fundamentally and interested in your perspective of just what fundamentally causes inflation, what uh, global impacts does it have on society and generally how we can mitigate its effects. I think those are kind of like the core three questions that a lot of people have about inflation that I'm interested in your, your perspective on. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, such a big topic, right? I mean, it's like huge and... Um... It's, it's super interesting from a macro perspective, right? We all, you know, everybody that studied economics, you know, inflation is a huge impact in terms of how to manage an economy and improve an economy and optimize a economy. Um, and I think what has been established in the past historically is there's been a, a clear separation between sort of the government itself and then the federal uh, reserve and, and, and the monetary policies. So you've tried to keep them separately. However, 
they've become more and more intertwined as the performance of an economy drives a lot of votes and, 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 and sentiment in, a, in an economy or in a nation, right? And so ultimately they've merged together. But it has a number of, of impacts. And, and our belief is that ultimately the, you know, um, the average person working um, and, and collecting a wage every single month or every two weeks is doesn't necessarily understand what inflation means because it doesn't actually impact you directly. You're still getting that, you know, $100 at the end of every week or every day. That's what's coming into your wallet, into your account, into your bank account as a check. It's still that same amount. However, with inflation, what you don't realize is that that amount has dropped by 13% over the course of a year. So if you in a next year, you get $100 written on that check, the actual value of that is minus 13%, right? So all of a sudden, that $100 is now only $87 or something like that. So you don't realize that because the number hasn't changed, but the value and the purchasing power has changed. So how do we communicate what inflation really is and what is the sentimental impact of that inflation and how, how do you depict that, right? And that's a real challenge to make sure that the, everybody sort of really understands what inflation is. And one of the ideas that we've been toying with is how do we build, you know, with dynamic NFTs, you have the ability to show a deprecating NFT. So you can buy an NFT, you tie it to Truflation, and over time, the color starts to fade in that NFT, or it starts to get more and more crimple, crankle, you know, sort of crank, I don't know what you call it, crumbled up. And so, or it, it sort of starts to get holes in it and, and sort of the quality diminishes, etc. So how could you play with something like that? So that then ultimately it, there is a visualization effect associated with what inflation really means and how that's impacting everybody. From a Wall Street perspective or a fund management perspective, or there's this huge industry called TIPS, a treasury in uh, treasury um, treasury inflation protected security is what TIP stands for, and that industry is is in the you know I don't know how big it is, but basically what and, and there's enough internet you know research that anybody can do search Google how big is that industry, but what that means is that your funds are protected against inflation. And so a lot of institutions, fund managers are looking for a 2% on top of inflation. If you get 2% on top of inflation, that means your value, the purchasing power associated with your dollar is increasing by 2% above uh, inflation, which actually provides a great return. Now, if inflation is really 13 or 14%, if you're getting 2% above the 7%, that's not enough to make sure you're retaining the value of your funds um, and the purchasing power associated with it. And so investors are very keen to ensure that they're not losing in purchasing power. And so the numbers that are actually published are really important to them. And so it's really critical that we, number one, have a really professional team 
building out this product. Number two, have super credible sources that we're using to aggregate these funds. And number three, have a super transparent algorithm that people can review and comment and suggest on how to improve that so that everybody has the insight in terms of how trueflation is calculated. Yeah, that makes a lot that of sense. That was a really long you bring answer up a... to a simple question. But um, <laughs> yeah, I just felt it, it, it is such a sophisticated and complex situation. How I, I don't think it's so easy to address it in, in a simple answer, some, unfortunately. No, I appreciate that. I, I know that there's a lot of, you know, people see inflation as an issue, issue and they'll have, you know, very unnuanced <laughs> takes on it, which doesn't really help anybody. You mentioned something in terms of the TIPS, the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. I think that's a very interesting area of the economic sector that I don't think a lot of people necessarily know about. I don't think that's nearly as well known as like just buying up Tesla stock on Robinhood or something. But um, in my mind, I see that as something becoming more popular over time. Um, what, what, what's your opinion about bringing those types of products into DeFi? Do you see inflation-resistant algorithmic stablecoins becoming much larger? We're seeing a couple of a couple of those to start to enter the market these days, and it seems like the perfect time. So, where do you see this whole sector of you know smart contract driven, inflation resistant financial instruments? Do you see that really blowing up? Do you see trueflation playing a huge role here? What, what's your kind of your take on the growth of that aspect? Yeah, so I mean, you touched on them, right? There, there are a number of inflation protected stablecoins coming out. Um, we're in talks with a number of them. Um, they're at the moment using the sort of uh, traditional CPI data and they've started down that development path. So um, I think over the course of the next three to six months, we'll see some interesting developments in, in that front. And um, so that's going to be really interesting. So basically your stable coin is going to be protected against inflation. So ultimately um, that's, and they're algorithmic stable coins. So it's also going to be, interesting how those evolve and, and, and where we see those go. Um, the other element where we're seeing is as we aggregate uh, CPI, we're seeing a whole set of subcategories, e.g. real estate as a category um, where we're aggregating pricing. Can we do a price index? Can we provide pricing data associated with real estate? Commodities, which influence the price of food, and we're aggregating that as well. So do we have a commodities index and we can track the pricing of commodities and we can put all of that again on chain. So not only real estate on chain, commodity pricing and transportation, we can have a transportation index. We're aggregating from multiple different sources, all the pricing of automotive, petrol, uh, uh, gas, um, etc. And so we can have that information online and have a separate index for that. As those go online, you can see that particularly products that are related to synthetic assets that are based on the real world, e.g. Um, stock prices, uh, gold prices, other real estate prices, a lot of people are beginning to start mortgaging or sort of taking their physical house and using that to borrow in crypto against their physical house. Where do I source the price and the value of a physical house or apartment or condo? And, and so if I'm building that and aggregating that together, 
where do I go? And if I'm building that out as a smart contract, where do I go to find that? And hopefully Truflation becomes that source of information um, to the developers of those smart contracts. And ultimately, we're participating at the Chainlink Hackathon, which is starting, um, I think, next week or this weekend. And as a result, we're looking to developers to help us with ideas and use cases. There's no greater creative mind out there than the collective developer community. And Chainlink has an extremely large developer community. And so ultimately, we're hoping that they come up with ideas and can help us further and build out products based on use cases that they help us define with all the data that we're aggregating. We're aggregating more than a million data points today across the whole bucket uh, basket of of a household expenditure. Yeah, that's that's, that's interesting. So you bring up um, how, how you're going to bring this data on chain mm-hmm. and how a lot of different DeFi applications can start building these applications and you know around your data and how you can bring on not just uh, you know just not just the inflation index itself but specific indices that make up the inflation metric. So kind of two questions that kind of come to mind. I'll start with the first one: is that it sounds like. Yeah. Inflation of the U.S. dollar is like the primary focus, but uh, are you guys going to start tracking inflation of other currencies, uh, indices for other assets around the world? You know, well, what's the kind of the scope of data that Trueflation wants to eventually bring on chain and power the on-chain data economy? So, I mean, at the moment, we focused on inflation just mainly because that basket is so big. The investment portfolio and consume, consumption portfolio of a household is so diverse and broad that it covers all financial and economic data. And so our goal is to bring all of, as much of the financial and economic data as possible on chain and make that available to all the developers and, and, and have that embedded in all the smart contracts across the Chainlink network, working with all the node operators in the Chainlink network, as well as with uh, you know the different blockchains that Chainlink is integrated with. That's, that's our overall mission and goal. It's quite a big one. What are our next steps on the roadmap? We've looked at sort of going into geographies. How can we go into new geographies? Which geographies do we go on um, to bring out the same calculations and the same benefits? Um, to providing a transparent um, inflation set of data as it relates to Europe, as it relates to Brazil, Argentina, Mexico, um, Japan, um, and anywhere else in the world for that matter. How do we go about doing that? How do we scale up for that? And, and we have a vision to do that. We've now got a team about, we're still tiny, right? We're a team of uh, 20 people, 15 people now. Um, scaling up, we want to sort of really scale up and, and figure out how we go uh, get bigger and, and scale into the multiple geographies. But the big challenge for us has been we're aggregating, as I mentioned earlier, so many different data sources. We're aggregating so much data from so many different data sources in different formats, in different time intervals. How do we aggregate that and then come out on a daily basis with a update to the various adapters and to our feeds on Chainlink. Um, and, and, and that's really the challenge. And we found some really good partners in, thanks to Chainlink, in the Chainlink ecosystem 
that have been super accommodating and really helpful and supportive, both with engineering support as well as architectural support in, in helping us um, tackle that challenge and that problem. Okay, so it's it's great to hear the scope of the data that you guys are wanting to bring on chain and the different uh, the, the different challenges that you guys have uh, kind of overcome during this time. So uh, you kind of touched on this already, but I'm curious to kind of uh, hone in on this more. Like, what was it like working with the Chainlink team on this? And why did you guys choose to go with Chainlink Oracles to bring this data on chain out of uh, the other Oracles that exist out there? Yeah, I mean, we we talked to, I mean, obviously we talked to the other Chainlink, uh, with other Oracles out there. We talked to, I mean, you know, Band Protocol, Kylin, API3, um, and, and Subsquib, um, and, 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 and Chainlink, right? And it was really what really, the, the first red rag to a bull to us was when Balaji posted um, in the 1729 backslash inflation blog, the dashboard, right? And for us, that was, we're onto something here. Uh, we always had the gut feeling that saying there's something wrong, we have to provide more transparency and insight into inflation. But when we saw that post, that was really, let's go for it, right? And so we just ran through um, to get this out to market and build a MVP and get that onto market. And Chainlink was the first most responsive and, and we had really good support um, from our business development team that connected well with one of the, you know, yeah. So Ken on our business development team connected really well with Mike um, on the Chainlink team, and they were just jamming together on on us getting uh, up onto Chainlink onto market um, dot link link dot market uh, market dot link sorry, and then on and and putting an adapter up on there, and so we just raced to do that, and we had a deadline for us. December one was a deadline because I got a keynote spot at Decentral in Miami. And, and that's where we wanted to announce it. And so we had to race to get it ready by then. And that was also aligned with the deadline on the blog for the competition, the dashboard award competition. And so we felt that rather than spending all the time applying, let's just say we have already submitted it. Here's the dashboard. Here's all the data. Take a look at it. And, and, oh. That's sort of what we built out and delivered. Um, and that was really what got us going. And we tried to aim to that goal. That then led to us moving up the ranking and getting the awareness of David Post and Sergey, who then really took us to a whole new level and really started facilitating and supporting our introduction across the whole Chainlink organization, where we're now working with the business development team over in the UK, Yasser and Nick and that team over there. LV on the corporate development side has really been opening up doors on the engineering side and really trying to get in from a node operator perspective. How does that work? How do we get in tighter with the node operators in the market.link as you know, storefront, if you call it, and that's what we call it. It's like an app store for Oracle services. How do we get better discoverability on there? How does any Oracle service get out there? Because I think from a Chainlink standpoint, what we need to do 
is really grow awareness that these oracles are available. You don't need to go and build your own oracle. Check out market.link and find an oracle there. Nine times out of 10, somebody's already built something. It may not be perfect, but I'm sure you can work with that developer to improve it. And I'm sure you can work with the team that built it, optimize it and get it better. You can integrate that. That's going to save you time. That's going to save you effort. And it's going to have also give you interaction of somebody who's tried to tackle that same problem in the past. And so that's where we've really been working with the Chainlink team on in the past. But going forward, we've got a whole bunch of other areas that, again, thanks to the network and, and, and the development team at, uh, at Chainlink, uh, we've been introduced to a whole bunch of new um, development resources, engineering talent that have helped us. And, and, and Chainlink's been super helpful across all of that with so many different touch points, yet all coordinated uh, largely through our strategic partnership and the corporate development team. Um, it's, it's glad to hear that uh, working with the Chainlink Labs has been a very good experience. It sounds like they've been very supportive of your team, the initiative you guys have been doing. Um, I kind of want to dive more into the Bology challenge that was brought up. It sounds like that was a large inspiration for you guys. Um, and just, just some context, Bology, he's the former uh, CTO of Coinbase. He put out a blog post around last, last August where he described basically the need for a decentralized censorship-resistant inflation dashboard. A lot of the nuances and how he would award a prize. Um, and this was a prize uh, that Trueflation would uh, go on to win. So I'm, I'm curious, what was that process like? Did you work with Bology? Um, uh, yeah, what was that process like? So it was funny, you know, um, we were doing research on inflation and we were toying with the idea of building an inflation-backed stablecoin. And not only were we toying with it, we were looking at what it would take to build that, uh, what are the requirements associated with that. Um, and it was only when we saw the 1729.com backslash inflation blog post, when that came out, I mean, that was for us, it was a bit like a red rag to a bull. I mean, it really made us and inspired us to say, this is a product, right? Alone, Trueflation is worthy of its own standalone business and let's build it. And so we created a slightly separate team to the stablecoin team and just focused on Trueflation and building out Trueflation and launching that as fast as we possibly could. We knew the deadline for the competition was November, 2021. And, and so we just raced for that deadline to actually, rather than submitting to the competition, let's deliver the end product. And, and that was truly the inspiration. The ideas, the capability of doing the dashboard um, was a lot of the details in there provided the team with a lot of inspiration uh, in terms of where we can go to source this information. How do we get it up on Chainlink? Uh, what are the requirements on Chainlink to build out an adapter? And throughout that, we then interact. I mean, a whole bunch of um, participants and, and, and users that were going to help us in the journey of building this out. So we reached out to Mike at Chainlink. We reached out to, we saw some of the advisors, Pompliano, Anthony Pompliano. We saw you know Raj Gokal from Solana and Sergey. And so 
that was for us really huge inspiration and just saying we're onto something here. How do we go and get Trueflation live as a product in an MVP status, um, ready and up and running? And we did that. And so happy to have had that inspiration and that affirmation that what we're doing was the right thing. Yeah, that sounds yeah. like that was <laughs> perfect timing. Right I, I, it, was, um, it was really good. You mentioned how the blog post mentioned a lot of kind of the nuances that comes to tracking this data. Yeah. Uh, what were some of the like unexpected challenges that you ran into, if any, and how did you kind of un- overcome those? Because uh, I, I can't imagine it, it, it can't be uh, too easy to create this index. It wasn't. I mean, it wasn't. Number one is identifying the basket, right? So having to do the research and identifying what the whole household expenditure consists of, what are the different product items. Number two is where do we source the pricing data from? How do we go and aggregate that versus doing a census model? And I think the biggest challenge for us was actually trying to aggregate a lot of this data from on-chain sources, Um, How do we pull together on-chain information as it relates to payments, uh, solutions, categorized by brackets, by um, the basket of expenditure, right? That was really hard. Um, And then how do we work with the likes of uh, Coinbase Commerce with um, BitPay, GoCrypto, AnyPay, POS vendors out there that are actually allowing on-chain pay, you know, payment solutions at a point of sale. Um, and so how do we track that? And, and that, to be honest, was the biggest challenge. And we're still working through that challenge right now. And that is basically having an on-chain virtual cycle for pricing and consumer pricing indexing associated with, with real-world assets, right? Because in the end, we are, when we spend on a for our household uh we are buying real world products and we want to be able to pay for those real world products in crypto and ultimately if we're paying in crypto that price is going to be available on the blockchain for a specific product that fits into a specific bracket or category that then should go back into that category index Um, and so how to build that virtuous cycle we're still really early on in doing that. And and ultimately that's sort of, I'd say where we have the biggest challenge. Yeah, that's interesting. It it sounds like you see a lot of payments for real world assets happening on chain, then you could just easily fetch that data and ingest it into your system. So that that kind of raises a more technical oriented question is how how exactly is Chainlink used in your guys' infrastructure? You've mentioned an adapter. Are you guys running a node? Are you working with existing node services? What's the mesh between Chainlink infrastructure and Trueflation infrastructure? So we have an adapter, as you highlighted. We run a node ourselves as well, and we run the service as a node and through our node. We've brought on another node provider to also run um, Trueflation on their node. Uh, They've done that. That's trustednode.io. We're affiliated, so that does help a little bit. Um, And then we are, you know, we've just got on... um, you know, Ken has joined our team, or he's been on since the beginning, pretty much, um, really building out and doing business development. How do we get to more node operators? How do we identify them? How do we reward them? How do we incentivize them to host our node and 
start driving subscriptions to that node service. Um, and so that's, that's sort of where we're at. And, and discoverability on Chainlink is, is sort of also what we're working with the Chainlink team on. How do developers know what oracles are available to them? What data oracles and what data oracle DAWNs or data oracle networks are available to them? Where can they go and access it? How can they discover them and, and, and quickly use them? Um, in their smart contract for specific services. And I don't think um, it, it, that discoverability is as simple as one would wish it would to be. And we've been working closely with the Chainlink team on trying to help improve that discoverability beyond just market.link and, and, and how can we unpack um, certain um, Oracle services that are available. Yeah, that, that's. I always love seeing projects running Chainlink nodes and bringing their unique data sets on chain. Yeah. Um, I, I do agree that discoverability is kind of the early stages of the Chainlink network. Yeah. A lot of it's like, you know, very price feed focused because that's what DeFi needs. But I think having services like Market.Link is such a crucial resource for these more specialized data sets. Um, and that kind of brings into a question of, in terms of well, when you bring this data on chain, what use cases are you imagining? We, we, you mentioned inflation-resistant stablecoins, and we can get into that. I think that's very, very interesting. But is there any other unique use cases you see for bringing this data on chain? Is this for is this just smart contracts, or is this for other people to read the chain and use the chain as like a database? You know, what are your thoughts here? Both, right? So I see. I mean, we're we're definitely still exploring, and I can't say we found the golden nugget. And by the way, I don't believe there's one golden nugget, and that's going to be the end all, be all. I think it's going to have a multiple set of services and the value of Trueflation is going to be in the community that's adopting it and appreciating it and contributing to the improvements of it, number one. Number two is use cases. I mean, we talked about the stable coins, but we're also seeing services in the real world that are trying to provide crypto collateral or DeFi services with real world assets, right? You've got products like projects like Goldfinch, Centrifuge. They're using real world assets and try to provide you a crypto loan associated um, with that. Where are they getting the price points for, example, your real estate, for your your gold ring that you want to securitize and use that as a collateral to pawn and, and get a loan uh, off the back of that. How does that work? Where do they get the pricing for that? Um, that's one area where we see opportunity. Um, the next area is, is also around synthetic assets, right? So we talked about the inflation-backed stablecoin, which is in a way sort of a TIPS, a, a, a treasury insur- in, inflation-protected securities, which is a whole industry on its own. And we see that whole industry growing significantly. How do we make sure Trueflation is a trusted source of inflation data into that securities industry? What does that look like? And what's the timing of that? Um, that those are all on-chain solutions. The other element is synthetic assets, right? A synthetic pricing in the form of tokens related to real world assets, e.g. stocks, commodity prices, and I want to create a synthetic token against that, who's providing that pricing to that stock, to that commodity, to that gold, to that metal um, that is then being um, tokenized and then ultimately as a token representation being traded 
in the marketplace. So those are a, a slightly broader range of, of use cases. The other one is dynamic NFTs, right? Patrick Collins is constantly talking about dynamic NFTs. Um, and one simple use case is how to visualize what inflation does to your product is how can I embed in an NFT, a in a dynamic NFT, the decaying of that NFT based on inflation. All of a sudden, then I am visualizing inflation and the impact inflation really has on my asset and my and uh, my money or my NFT in this case, which is then highlighting the decay of value in uh, and what thanks to inflation really. But we're also seeing off-chain interest in what we're doing, where particularly funds are looking for ways to give them arbitrage information associated with inflation or with a whole set of financial and economic data. As we put that um, and make that available on-chain, they may want to subscribe to it off-chain. However, the value of having it imprinted and emboldened into the blockchain proves that you cannot abuse the data points that we're giving you and that you're pulling from off-chain, but it can be easily verified by anybody by going and taking a look at what the numbers are equivalent to what you've pulled um, off-chain you can then go and have that verified on chain, which is the other interesting aspect. Yeah, I think people typically, when you put data on chain, people think about the smart contract use case, yeah. and you brought up some good ones. I think synthetic assets, that's literally a multi trillion dollar opportunity. Good data there is not an optional thing, yeah. it's a requirement. It's a requirement. And so right. that, that's really where the data providers, yeah, that's where data providers really come in. Uh, but the reading of on chain data from off chain, I mean, the blockchain, like you said, it basically serves as this immutable database that's completely transparent and that you can track at a very granular level every single update and can be accessed anywhere in the world. Yeah. Um, something that Balaji mentioned in his in his post is that in a censorship-resistant inflation dashboard would become the next coin market cap or bigger, in fact. Uh, do you think this is true? Do you think a true inflation dashboard will become bigger than uh, just a coin market cap type equivalent? I definitely think so. I mean... I think this should be the next coin gecko, right? And why it should be bigger than that is because it impacts so many different aspects of everybody's day-to-day -day economic, you know, outcome or wealth, right? I mean, you're tracking where you're spending your food, how much your food is going up, what you you know, what do you need to do at the end of the year or at the end of every half a year or quarter when you're renegotiating a salary? What does that look like in terms of getting a bump in salary to make up for the value that you're losing thanks to inflation? Um, I think, where do I go to see that? How do I then connect my wallet or my, you know, my my day to day wallet that I'm using for purchasing food, for purchasing all of my shopping, my my paying my and servicing my, you know, my, my lease on my car, my mortgage, whatever it is, that wallet or those wallets build and represent a outlay that can be compartmentalized or categorized. I can then aggregate that spending off the detail in from EtherScan or from BSC scan or wherever I'm pulling it from. I can then have that 
description, that layout and, and that presentation be categorized and see what my personal inflation is going to look like. And then all of a sudden, that CoinGecko or CoinMarketCap equivalent is now personalized to me and relevant for my inflation. What am I personally experiencing on a day-to-day basis in a simple dashboard? Um, and so that's what we're trying to build out. It's going to take some time. And not only is it going to take some time, it's also going to be challenging in terms of how to aggregate all of this data in a format that is then presentable and digestible and you know, visually appeasing, appealing as well. Sorry. Yeah, I, I personally love the idea of a personal inflation dashboard. Yeah. I give it my assumptions and configurations. I, it tells me exactly how much inflation has been has been fucking me over. Yeah. I, I personally <laughs> love that idea. I would I would I would use that personally. Um, um, yeah. it, it seems like you, you guys want to bring on a lot of the like underlying data. Um, are you guys going to be continue? Are you going to be focusing on the U.S. dollar specifically, or other currencies as well? Is that is that what, kind of hinting at there? Yeah, yeah no. Um, you know, the, the team will kill me for saying this, but you know, I think we're we're <laughs> we're 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 in on path and on. We have a you know a really good trajectory to bring this out to five different countries in one go. Um, I think the model and the framework is already set. So for us to adapt this beyond just U.S. dollars, so to take it to the U.K., to Canada, to um, maybe Mexico and, and, and Europe is, is, is not too difficult for us. It's just the important element is how can we acquire the relevant sources of data to be able to have that available and, and, and be able to then um, to present it is, is not difficult and, and to navigate through that is not that difficult based on, and, and at the same time, we're also revising the dashboard. So we're going from six categories that we have today, we're going to be having 12 categories. And that's, you know, so we're adding more data sets, we're categorizing and breaking it down even for, further. So now we have 12 subcategories that people can work with um, within a CPI. Um, more transparency, broader reach in terms of more markets that we can provide inflation insights into um, are all a part of the game. And then how do we visualize that? So making that dashboard more interactive. Um, and and I don't think we're, we're quite ready to do customization and personalization where we can get the community ultimately to take the 12 categories, mix and match how they would like to, but that's something we'd love to be able to build on and, and, and you know, develop further. Yeah, that, that's, that's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what it kind of sounds like to me is that, I mean, that, that's a lot of data. Yeah. It sounds like that's going to be put on chain to be processed. Do you see Ethereum being too expensive for this, being a bottleneck? <laughs> or is the plan for like a polygon for layer two rollups? I know you mentioned BSC. What's the kind of thinking here since Ethereum is is what it is yeah i mean ethereum is is expensive um and so we're just writing to the chain once a day um you know so we can't do it real time if we wanted to do it real time just be too expensive uh we have already and yeah so you can actually go to um link marketplace and you can actually find Trueflation on BNB chain, and you can find it on Polygon already today. Uh, those announcements are going out today and tomorrow. 
Uh, we're going to be announcing that it's available to everybody on BNB chain. We've already got developers on BNB chain that are using Trueflation. Um, so we've got an insurance company, we've got a synthetic assets company, Duet.Finance and Mitigate are looking um, to deploy, have, are, are in development on deploying Trueflation.com. And, and yeah, and then Polygon, we've just started. So getting onto more chains, so more developers and can start using this data and embedding it into smart contracts. And I think it's really around creating synthetic assets. Um, that's really what they are looking to build out. And that's going to be, I think, the predominant use case and the easiest one for people to comprehend. Yeah, that's great to hear a full, a full multi-chain approach yeah. effectively. Yeah. Um, that's the future. So, oh yeah, absolutely. And yeah. uh, this, we kind of touched on this before, but do you see the "quote unquote" bigger product being this dashboard itself, or the Oracle service running the Chainlink node, putting the data on chain? Or they do you see those as basically the same service being used in different ways? Same service being used in different ways. I think um, we will have. I mean, there'll be two sides of the business. I think there will be a constituent that is only interested in the raw data and being able to play around with the raw data in different ways and different forms. There will be a constituent of users that just want the dashboard and want to be able to get the price, identify um, and see what the different markets are doing and see it all in one place. And I think that's what's proving to be the real value at the moment is seeing it all in one place. And I think that's when we talk to fund managers and hedge fund operators and the financial community, that's what they love about Trueflation. I can find it all in one place. And, and that's really intriguing to them. But then there's the third constituent, which I think is going to be the smart contract developers. All they want to do is be able to embed the feed from Chainlink as an Oracle service directly into their smart contract. And so... Yeah, so people are going to want the raw data, people are going to want the dashboard, and other constituents are going to want the, um, the, 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 the Oracle service, if you will. Yeah, that makes sense. I, in my mind, I see there eventually, over time, growing demand for this data from the specifically the smart contract yeah. side. Is You mentioned before, creating an inflation-resistant stablecoin, is that still a goal for you guys? Is it you know getting the data in the dashboard first and then stablecoin afterwards using you know, dog fooding your own chain link service? So we've been talking to a number of the, I mean, let's, you know, at the moment, they're still stable coins, right? Because they're all, we're all pegged to the US dollar, right? And, or, or to another currency. And what we, you know, one thing that I'm a big believer in is bringing more governance on chain. And so smart contracts is a way of bringing governance on chain and, 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 and managing you know, sort of policies and, 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 and governance on, you know, on chain, leveraging the cryptographically verifiable truth to drive decision making um, thanks to that capability. And so thereby, yeah, just streamlining a lot of the processes that are currently centralized and managed by, you know, uh, representatives who are acting either on behalf of, of certain constituents or other constituents. Um, so that's to put it nicely. Um, but as, as we go down that path, one of the things is how do we also have a currency 
that is no longer pegged to any other currency, but is pegged to a basket of my household expenditure, right? And so if I have my inflation, I have my areas of expenses, what to me is a dollar? And how does that dollar or coin or flat coin, as, as Balaji calls it, how is that flat coin pegged to an inflation index that goes out there? And how do we make that available? And we only need to get that distributed to 5, 10 million people. If 5 to 10 million people trust that, we have a global currency out there, right, that can be then extended into, you know, spillovers where people want to trade into that currency and not. And so for us, that's ultimately the end goal. We're talking to a number of stable coin developers out there. Um, and we are really keen on, on having a coin out there before the summer ends, that's for sure. And, and if, if we can't find a customer that's going to do that, we will do that ourselves. Um, we've started on that development. Um, and if we pull it off fast enough, um, and, and, and the adoption is, is high and people like what we're doing, we'll continue to um, make sure that the product market fit scales. I think that makes sense. Yeah. It sounds like it's a large focus. Yeah. I think kind of maybe just stepping back a second for set some context, how generally would you describe how inflation-resistant stablecoins work? Since I've seen some confusion, people think it's basically an up-only token, um, if, in my mind, I've seen different designs where you have a treasury of assets and then you're earning yield on those assets. Most of that goes to the token to hold that new peg, that inflating peg, plus the rest going to a share token. Is that kind of what, uh, if, if Trueflation were to create an inflation-resistant stablecoin, is that what it would look like? Or how, how would you describe how these coins work? Yeah, I think, you know, um, I mean, there's, there's fractional reserves, there's collateral reserves, there's, uh, alg- you know, and then there's an algorithmic stability based on the collateral that's there. If I have a fractional collateral, how do, you know, if the collateral is a fraction of the circulation, how do I algorithmically continue to stabilize that? And where do I apply inflation adjustment is it on the collateral or is it on the coin that's in circulation and and that's where that stability engine really is working to constantly compute and optimize based on the pricing information that's coming in based on what i have in my collateral hub and based on what the amount of coins are in circulation um i think that's that's where and how we see that unfold um I believe in, in slightly maybe more a maker DAO type model where I actually have a, a collateral hub in the back end um, to support um, the the coins that are in circulation, um, asset backed, if you will. Um, and you're seeing that those, you know, the, the three projects that are really, um, I mean, yeah, anyway, there, there are a couple, you know, DAI is super interesting. They've been around the longest. Uh, UST has been making a, a good footprint, you know, Frax is doing a good job, Bolt's coming out as well. Um, and, and I think, you know, we're, we're working on something as well. Um, and, and we'll be announcing Nuon um, at consensus um, if we can't find a stronger partner to work with um, that's going to adopt it faster. But, you know, Balaji's theme around flat coin 
around inflation protection associated with the basket really was spot on with our vision that we had when we first started Hydro Labs in, or Laguna, as we call it now, we changed the name. But when we first started Laguna in July last year. Yeah, it sounds like there's a whole, stable coins have a whole design space. And uh, I mean, it's split into collateralized and algorithmic, and now there's inflation resistant, and that can be either model. It's it's a huge design spectrum. You, you previously mentioned uh, governance of the system and you don't need to answer this if you don't want to, but does that imply a Trueflation governance token? How, how would that kind of be mediated? Yeah, so we, we have launched a governance token and we've done a private sale for our governance token uh, where we want the community to help us structure and shape Trueflation, right? And help us with weighting. Uh, we want economists to contribute to this. We want um, data architects to help us identify how we shape this product going forward. Um, and so we've set up a DAO, uh, we call it a data DAO, um, and we're working closely with Chainlink, with Fundamental Labs, with C Squared, um, around how we should shape this and, and how we should scale this, um, and, and what partners want to participate in helping structure that. And, and so that's how we, that's where we are today. Ultimately, we've also been talking to Penn State University who have done a lot, done a lot of work in real estate, real estate, excuse me. And then we were also talking to, you know, Duke University around what they're doing and, and the economist program over the economy program over there. Um, and so, yeah, we're just sort of trying to explore how best to get input into what we're structuring so that token holders can influence the direction and we've adopted a model that we haven't yet developed we still have to develop and and i will share with you more about that as as that comes to life but we want to bring a a token holder a governance model to play um, as DAOs mature in their evolution and the market gets ready gets you know adapts and and realizes and and learns processes as it as needed and um for a a, a dao structure yeah make, makes sense it, censorship or yeah just creating this type of dashboard has a lot of different parameters that need to be adjusted and parameters being adjusted inherently means some type of governance. So but it, it, there's a lot of different types of designs. Yeah, I mean, one, one thing that we've talked about ourselves is if you do that, how do you then manage um, and, and avoid or, or make sure you protect the core underlying principles of why you set up Trueflation, for example, versus let's say all of a sudden the Bureau of Labor and Statistics that actually calculates the CPI decides oh, we're going to buy $10 million worth of, of Trueflation tokens and we want to then be have a seat at the table and influence the direction of, of this CPI. Yeah, that's a real concern. How does, I know that some projects like Optimism, yeah. Yeah, there's some models where like you, you know, token holders control some things, but then you have more of like almost like a board of directors yeah. that are managing things more hands-on. So like, I, I think that like just direct token-based governance, like you mentioned, can just be kind of captured effectively. I mean, it's kind of built into the system. If you have more capital, you can get more control. So I, I will be interested to kind of 
follow up and see what kind of governance structures you guys see. Because I think particularly in this case, censorship resistance is kind of core to the product itself. I mean, it's in terms of like the data quality. So both the data being put on chain has to be censorship resistant and then the mechanism through which the parameters are tweaked kind of has to follow that as well. But yeah, it's not... It's not a simple question or a simple solution that will end up <laughs> coming from this. So I think kind of shifting gears more on the broader crypto space, um, still in terms of like in inflation, what, what are your general thoughts in terms of having Bitcoin as a hedge in inflation? Is that less or more viable than inflation resistant stable coins? Do you think that's a, a realistic narrative for Bitcoin or what are you kind of your thoughts there? Um, yeah. Um, run that by, sorry, I didn't quite understand that question. So like a, lar- a large narrative around Bitcoin is that it's uh, an inflation hedge, effectively. Yep. That's yeah, okay. kind of a large narrative yeah. around it. And now we have these algorithmic stable coins. Do you see one or the other being superior or are they just different? No, I, I definitely see Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation, right? I mean, to me, Bitcoin is gold, right? And And why do people buy gold? But they hold on to it as a means to make sure that the assets that they have personally does not um, depreciate or decay. And so to me, Bitcoin still resembles that, but it's not a good use for your day-to-day expenses and your day-to-day outgoings. And I think stable coins have been the best user experience provided to the crypto community thanks to the fact that it stays stable, right? And so whilst, and, and, and people can relate to it, right? So all of a sudden I can relate to how much one Bitcoin is, right? We're still not trading Bitcoin and paying in Bitcoin and pricing in Bitcoin. We're all still going back to the fact that one Bitcoin is $38,000 or 40,000 US dollars. So everything we do is relating that Bitcoin back to a US dollar and I want to trade in US dollars today. And so ultimately, I have a stable coin that allows me to trade without losing that potential asset. And to me, psychologically, what you see when I used to, and I still do, I want to get paid in the native token of every project I get involved with. Why? Because I want skin in the game. And if I'm sweating for your project, I want to be paid in your project's coin because I think I can have an impact to help move that coin up to the top right. And if I do that, I gain from that. But if I'm a lot of the projects that I've worked with that have agreed to that upfront when it was still at the bottom left, um, all felt a bit of a, oh man, we paid you so much. Because ultimately that coin went from $100 worth when we started in January. And when it ended in December that same year, it was not $100 worth, it was $1,000 worth. And so the view psychologically is still, I paid you $1,000 for your services that you did throughout the year, not $100. And so how do you break away from that? And if I would have said, oh, just pay me in stablecoin, then people felt, oh, okay, I'm just paying you $100 US for all of that service. And there was no appreciation in that. So psychologically, it's still the same thing because I had to sell $100 worth of that token into a stable coin and then pay you stable coin versus actually just paying you the stable coin directly and seeing it appreciate. And so 
um, there's definitely that psychological edge. Um, and, and that's why I think Bitcoin, people don't want to spend their Bitcoin. They just want to hodl it and they want to trade in derivatives and, 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 and um, uh, synthetic products associated with that stable coin. Um, and so how do we manage, how do we manage that? And that's why I think um, stable coins are a really good innovation and that's how they will complement the actual Bitcoin as a inflation hedge. Yeah, you, you bring up a good point just in terms of like the perception of paying people and getting paid in tokens is you don't track the token amount, 100 tokens, you track the US dollar yeah. amount because everyone's used to dollars and that's what they pay in. Um, it kind of gets into like the utility token narrative where initially a lot of tokens were just payment tokens. And I think over time, it'll be tokens you stake in that captures value in those the fees that people pay could be in stable coins. I think that's probably a more intuitive model, but I, I generally agree most things peer to peer payments will be mostly stable coins while uh, Bitcoin's like your uh, gold in a vault yeah, <laughs> equivalent yeah. store of value narrative that people push. Um, yeah, so, so kind of going more future facing, uh, you have something else? Yeah. yeah, no, I just feel that when, when I first got involved in Bitcoin, what I really liked was the ability to pay people anywhere in the world instantaneously with no fees. And I really loved that nature of Bitcoin. Um, and I feel that was the utility that Bitcoin provided us. Um, and I really feel that we need to ensure that crypto and Web3 remains and continues to provide utility services that improve and streamline um, and, and bring down the costs associated with governance, payments, uh, fund management, etc. Right, and and so how do we make sure certificates, um, assets, you know, sort of um, uh, intellectual property, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How do we make sure that crypto and Web three continue to bring that utility service and value to the market, and the coins associated with the Web three are translated and transferred associated with the utility that innovation has to stay alive and we as a community have to continue to push and 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 innovate to make sure it does constantly improve and we don't get lazy and fall back on the ways of the old yeah i, I would agree yeah. there i think if we if we lose the ideals and the actual innovation in the space then we have a bunch of tokens that people like passing between each other and then no no real world value is generated. Yeah. And that's, that's been one of my concerns is that people uh, get lazy or they just get, you know, rich and then they exactly. you know, play these, like, <laughs> these metagames. I mean, that's, that's the other thing, right? I mean, you get rich and then you, you want to build barriers around the wealth that you've created. So you then just become comfortable and you want to stop all innovation happening around you so that you can just bear the fruits. And I've been involved in so many different industries and with different associations. And I've seen that again and again, First, you're the disruptor and you're constantly challenging and innovating and pushing really hard to change and drive the adoption of your change outside of a regulatory framework. Then all of a sudden, you become the incumbent because all of a sudden, the change that you've been driving is becoming a standard. And then you're, all you're doing is building barricades and moats to protect your standard as the de facto standard. And you've dropped 
the need to, continues to, to continuously innovate. And for us as a community, we need to retain that need to continuously innovate. And I don't think we should get comfortable and sit back and just hope that we can bear the fruits of the work that we did 20 years ago. I, I, and that's why I really like the Ethereum community in terms of constantly trying to change, right? We're not just living on a proof of work environment. No, we're trying to change. We're trying to scale up Ethereum as a protocol, as a layer one. Um, you know, how do we do that? How do we build sharding? How do we build, you know, proof of stake? And how do we merge these assets from a proof of work environment into a proof of stake environment, right? The continuous innovation that's happening on an Ethereum work, you can criticize it. It's, it's not proven. It's not waiting till it's mature, but it's driving change. And change creates huge opportunity. Opportunity drives hope and hope keeps us alive and happy. And that's why the crypto community in general is a really happy community. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> Basically, we don't want crypto to be people becoming the new elite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Basically, we don't want to recreate the old system. Exactly. Um, yeah, I, I, I generally agree with your pro, You're uh, thinking that Ethereum is more malleable. There's more innovation. It's not, it's not finished. They're still improving it. Uh, I think that has a value prop. And I think Bitcoin's approach of just ossification of we don't want to change things uh, has its value prop as well in yeah. terms of it's very low attack surface. I think they're both complementary. I think kind of the fight that exists between BTC and ETH is kind of silly because they're not they're not trying to do the same thing. They're taking different approaches and trying to achieve different goals in my mind. So yeah, that's kind of a, a broader point, but I kind of see Web3 is just ruthless competition. Yeah. I mean, the code is forkable. It's open source. It's on chain. It's like everyone's naked, basically. Yep. Like you have to really build moats that aren't just proprietary, you know, patents, but like more network effects of a community. Like community is one of the most powerful network effects in crypto. That's, you know, uh, do businesses have a community? Yes, but it's not, you know, a project that gives a retroactive airdrop like that. You don't see retroactive stock drops yeah. <laughs> in Web2. Like that, that's not really, you don't get paid for using Twitter or anything. So yeah, the, I, I think Web3 is hopefully continues down this path of innovation. Um, and kind of a little bit on that note, do, do you see Bitcoin or some other crypto becoming or, or even like a stable coin that ends up uh, ditching its peg and becoming its own? Do, do you see a crypto becoming the dominant world currency over the US dollar? Do you think that's realistic within like a 10-year time frame? Um, yeah, I do, I, I do think we will see... Um adoptions of of crypto as a as a global currency yeah i do think um a cryptocurrency and maybe it is bitcoin that acts as the gold and becomes the de facto back-end you know um central bank reserves that you need to have in order to play and and issue coins um maybe it you know it is ethereum where you have to pay for your global compute but i do see these all as new currencies evolving as the world becomes more and more digital um you know um yeah i i do see that opportunity i do see you know replacement uh opportunities or substitution opportunities with a cryptocurrency over a lot of the existing native currencies that we have today yeah i think a lot of people in crypto are generally aligned that direction yeah. it seems like people are in it for crypto as a money and then 
crypto as a form of determinism for contractual yeah. agreements. And it feels like Truflation's kind of value prop is, I mean, it's kind of in both, but really towards the smart contract aspect in large part. Where, where do you see Truflation uh, in, in the next 10 years? Do you see it powering, powering a significant part of, say, the DeFi ecosystem? Do you see a Truflation-powered uh, inflation-resistant stablecoin being trillions of dollars in market cap? What, what's kind of like a success story? For Truflation, I mean, it would be enabling and empowering a large number of smart contracts out there. I mean, that's Truflation's objective. Um, a stable, co- you know, stable coins is one bracket of the market opportunity that represents itself for Truflation. Um, you know, stable coins have and build out a number, it's a hyper complex, building a stable coin is extremely complex and it has a large portfolio of smart contracts behind any stable coin, particularly if it's algorithmic. And each of those smart contracts will require certain Oracle services. And hopefully, you know, that's one opportunity for Truflation to embed and feed some of those smart contracts that are behind a stable coin and the same for the synthetic market asset the same for you know projects like goldfinch and 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 um centrifuge um, that are taking real world assets and pricing them and putting them on the smart contract for me truflation is really an opportunity to help the governance of real world assets and real world pricing in a crypto market and and all these smart contracts bigger penetration in smart contracts with truflation as the source of truth for those smart contracts that is the win um and and the more truflation can do about that the more governance we have on chain the more cryptographically verifiable truth becomes a reality yeah i think that's a goal a lot of people can align with i think just in general smart contracts becoming the dominant form of digital agreement would be a superior, more, more, I guess, inclusive society for everyone where you don't have the top dogs basically controlling the agreements over everyone. Else. And if you like, look in... That's kind of a virtue a lot of people follow. In every city around the world, right? Everywhere you go, in downtown, in every city, what are the biggest tenants and what are the biggest logos on top of every single building in every city? It's always a bank. It's an accounting firm or it's a legal firm or an an account, you know, a a sort of, those are generally in every city you'll see or big consulting company, right? And so those have traditionally been the owners of all real estate uh, are in the most costly and expensive locations on the planet. And so if that's the case and you're seeing a lot of that shifting, right? So in crypto land or in Web3 world, we're seeing the auditors no longer being an accountant per se. They are all of a sudden smart contract auditors. They are security software auditors, right? So the audit has then shifted from a physical paper ledger based on a bank account statement into a crypto Web3 environment that is ensuring that it's secure the contracts and the governance is ad- adhering to what the white paper is saying and that it is aligned and the accounting principles are done based on what is represented in an explorer. 
So number one. Number two is DeFi. The whole financial community is moving on-chain. And as that governance moves on-chain, the legal framework has to change as well. We can't, lawyers will no longer be managing papers and writing hundreds and streams of paper. They'll be auditing the smart contracts and the white papers as they relevant as they are relevant to what is needed to be reflected in those smart contracts and the operations of that. And so I think the smart contracts then take over a lot of those responsibilities that have and are threatening the existing incumbents. And so I think that is something that um, is, is driving a lot of change and making Web3 developers and Web3 innovators and putting challenge to what we're working on from a regulatory framework and from a legacy um, uh, framework as well. Yeah, kind of how I've seen is crypto, smart contracts, Web3, whatever you want to call it, Based essentially like the future of the trust assurances industry, wiping out the more rent-seeking, basically, intermediaries that provide some value, but at the end of the day, it's a paper-based promise that, hey, you know, look at my logo. I got a big building. It's the biggest in town. You can trust me, which works until it doesn't, basically. And then, then you realize how bad of a situation you got yourself into. Moving from that into cryptographic truth, definitive global consensus, where not a single entity, no matter how powerful you are, can break an agreement once it's already been pre-written. Yeah. So uh, I, w- I would agree that, that that's really the systemic shift that we're seeing and that hopefully eventually gets realized. Um, but maybe one day we'll see a Truflation Tower or, or a crypto tower in New York City. I would love to see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, um, I, I think you will see that. I mean, look at look at what's happening already, right? I mean, we're seeing centralized entities beginning to have extracted so much value out of the crypto opportunity or the web three opportunity that all of a sudden you have football stadiums, you have basketball stadiums, you have, you know, uh, particularly, um, yeah, yeah. All of a sudden they're branded based on some of the crypto assets. So it's not a far fetched concept that all of a sudden we'll have, a physical building that is taking the name of some of the projects and protocols that are um, around the world. I think that yeah, the, yeah, that's a fair point. The challenge for a lot of us in Web three has been the acquisition and the you know the collaboration. Actually, is maybe a better word associated with talent around a specific project and a specific purpose to acquire and, 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 and identify or, or, or connect with talent has been generally a very distributed exercise as well because it's been hard in one specific environment to find a depth of talent that goes across Web3, uh, front-end development, Solidity, blockchain development, etc., so we've all worked in very decentralized fashions and as a result have not needed to have a physical office and building. Um, and, and, and as a result, real estate hasn't become an important priority for any of us other 
than it being a venue for marketing opportunities, for customer acquisition opportunities, which largely these sports stadiums have been representing because they aggregate and pool together a large amount of potential crypto users over the course of a weekend or a day um, uh, or, or a, a month, etc. And so that's why it's been really interesting seeing that part evolve, whereas most of us working in the Web3 world are still highly decentralized, um, distributed around the work planet, all working on the same similar project. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting dichotomy. Yeah. I think crypto is probably the one, I don't want to say industry, ecosystem, where remote working is basically like the default. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, global community, you don't need to hire somebody who happens to also live in Silicon Valley, but you know you can hire the best minds wherever they may happen to live in the world, and that's that's the best case for that project. It's the best case for that contributor, and you don't even need to have like a, a formal, you know, corporate structure. It could just be yeah. an autonomous organization that just collaborates together on a project. I mean, I think Yearn is like a good example of that. Of like, they're just a group of developers who work together and build something, and they create a smart contract where you know, it's basically it does what it says it does. I mean, that's, you don't really, in the traditional world, you need, you need a business, you need to get the licenses you need to get the paperwork. Like it's just that shift of how do you create value will create much more value in the process. Cause there's not all these bottlenecks. There's not all these funnels and loopholes you have to go through in order to actually just create your product. You could just build the product, launch it on Ethereum, boom, all these users can just start using it just like that. It's, it's a very unique experience. Um, yeah, and then think about the yeah, mind, the mind focus associated with that. If you can just focus on the product at hand and delivering that to market, your your delivery, your focus, your attention is so much more optimized versus oh, I have to get a rental property. Oh, I need a legal entity to establish so that I can engage in a rental agreement. Oh, I need a bank account because the landlord that's renting the property to me will only take fiat. Oh, I need to have utility set up because the, you know, all of those aspects come into play and distract from actually the building of value and, and, and user experience associated with a, a, a innovative new product. Um, and, and how do we minimize those distractions to allow us to further society further and faster, right? Um, and to me, that's, that's, the, that's been how crypto has evolved. And I think it's going to change um, just by nature of the size of, of Web3, um, the players entering into the Web3, um, and yeah, the talent it's attracting right now. So I think it will change. Um, but the beauty of it in the past has been that it has, as a result, has really allowed with the freedom that it has had is what is represented today. That freedom is what is attracting the talent into Web3 because it is so free. It is merit-driven and it you can express your creativity without the you know uh, frameworks or or being encumbered by regulation and and restrictions and compliance and and other uh, limitations and restrictions yeah 
on that note, we've at least I've seen a lot of people from Web two yeah. shifting careers yeah. to start working in Web three, and it's it creates a little bit of a culture shift. But I mean, intuitively, do you want to work on something where you're working on dark patterns to exploit someone's attention to get more ad revenue, or do you want to work on creating real fundamental value, creating more permissionless, more open, equitable systems for people? And the choice there is, I mean, once you understand Web three and crypto. It's kind of obvious. It, it, there's a bit of a rabbit hole and a bit of a process to really understand the value of crypto going beyond the speculation games to the you know, first principles. Why does this have value? But once you get to that point, you know, it's kind of self-evident. You don't really want to work Web 2 in the traditional systems yeah. anymore. You know, it just doesn't have that appeal. Um, with, with that being said, putting my pragmatic hat on, you know, institutions are not just going to sit down nope. and just take it. You know, <laughs> they're not just going to go, oh, well, we failed, you know, time to go home. You know, they're going to they're gonna, they're, at least, what, what, do you think that they're going to be able to shift quickly to a Web3? You know, maybe that's a DAO structure or something, or do you think it's going to take a while for these institutions to actually understand crypto is not going away, smart contracts are not going away, this is the future of contractual agreements? So I think they've already realized, you know, Web3 is not going away, smart contracts not going away. They need to play in this in this play in this room, right? They they need to figure out what their role is and how they're going to play in it. What they're going to try and do is slow us down. And by slowing us down, mm -hmm. they can find and position themselves how they need to play in, in this room, right? And what their role should be and how they should try and um incentivize maybe is the right word but realistically to bully us into complying with their rules of the game not just our rules and and the rules that we have evolved and uh, to get here i think that's really what's what's going to happen um and and they're not going to go away i mean let's let's be real right i mean they have huge balance sheets right they've got assets they're managing everybody's pensions uh, they are so intertwined with government um, that, you know, those relationships with regulators and policymakers and those balance sheets that they're sitting on and the vast amount of wealth that is uh, ultimately not theirs, but they are responsible for on behalf of a whole pop a nation's population is just so uh, powerful that they will fight tooth and nail to find their role going forward in a, a, a Web3 landscape. Um, and yeah, uh, how that yeah, manifests I itself, I don't of, know, but that's not, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to tell it's gonna end up. My fear is that that ends up causing, like things get watered down a little bit. Like there's still some, you still get the benefits of transparency in this mutable ledger, but does that mean if you want to interact with DeFi, you need to go through forced KYC? You know, if these institutions deploy permission versions and then they suck up all the liquidity network effects, how does that affect the existing DeFi ecosystems? I mean, those are kind of open questions how we're going to see that really play out. Yeah, look what's happening in and, Europe already, right? I mean, Europe just passed that law where you have now the travel rules. So not only do I have to do KYC, I have to do... KYC on you if I want to send you money from a non-custodial wallet. I mean, what's with that? You know, it's like everybody needs to do a KYC from the KYC for the KYC for the KYC holder. And ultimately, all you're doing is getting your passport copy, your proof of address at 5,000 different venues around the world that any time any one of them get hacked, 
your data is blatantly out there. And we've seen that happen across the board with so many existing institutions where that data is leaked, that data is hacked and it's stolen and is all of a sudden everywhere. And, and how is that beneficial? And what is that doing to stop the bribery and the fraud that is happening, right? And ultimately, the fraud and the bribery is all about you're not paying your taxes, right? The tax man is not getting his dollars. And in an MMMT world where the governments have been put, anyway, I can go on on this rant, but <laughs> um, yeah. I feel you on that. Yeah. So, I mean, realistically, crypto has a lower uh, crime rate, a lower exp- uh, illegal use of, of funds than fiat funds. I mean, fiat funds like 2% of GDP yeah. compared to crypto, which is like a fraction of a percent. So like, I mean, ultimately it comes down to the narratives, the kind of boogeyman narratives of how crypto could be used for. Oh, it's super anonymous, even if it's actually not. Different regulations coming out that want smart contracts to report data, you know, to the SEC and whatnot, which doesn't make sense for developers to report KYC data that they don't actually have. And because they're not actually, you know, an institution or a custodian, they just create software. Um, yeah, it's it, things can get pretty silly. I mean, it's I just hope it doesn't water down the ecosystem. I mean, we've seen Facebook try to launch a, like a metaverse uh, store and their fees were like 40% yeah. or something ridiculous Huge. because, well, you know, that's what like Apple does. Yeah. But it's like, this isn't Web 2. This isn't the App Store. This is, you know, you, you're going to have to compete against the fees that exist in Web 3 and then you could just get forked and get a lower fee inserted on you. So, yeah, I, I'm hopeful that the ideals of crypto, permissionless censorship resistance will live on in some form. Institutions will have their version. And my thinking is there'll be a bridge between the two. Maybe that's a compromise of privacy preserving KYC. We'll have to see how that plays out, how the regulation changes. But I think stepping back, kind of back on back on track in terms of like uh, inflation, yeah. what if somebody is highly concerned about inflation, what would be one core piece of advice that you would give them? You know, what, what, what can they do today? I mean, today you can buy crypto assets. So you can buy, you know, like, I mean, the Bitcoin, buy a Bitcoin. Bitcoin, hold on to Bitcoin and hopefully it appreciates and protects you against the depreciating value of your uh, fiat. Buy a inflation protected stable coin if you need for your day to day payments. Um, minimize your exposure to the fiat dollar um, to what you need. So if you can budget your monthly expenditure or weekly expenditure and you can go and convert your fiat your crypto into fiat on a weekly basis then that would help you minimize your exposure to that um i would say borrow as much as you can from a bank um because if inflation is seven percent and the bank is charging you five percent you're still making net profit of two percent uh in terms of purchasing power um so uh (laughs) that would be sort of um a couple of of pointers um that i would make gotcha hopefully it doesn't become a growing concern for people but you know well we we know how history has played out yeah currency so i mean it's hard i I mean just want to be realistic i mean i i I have i have i have kids um and you know i've i've brought my kids up to immediately and as fast as possible get exposure to crypto how to deal with a metamask how i take in as many interns as we possibly can as uh, from the age of whatever age i'm legally allowed to do it to learn about crypto understand how to 
troll a explorer. And we as a community need to communicate that crypto is an opportunity for a generation of a lifetime. It is transparent. It is not intransparent. There's no FUD. You can't hide. The worst activity that's happening today is the front running because it is so transparent. You have these big market makers that are front running the market because it's so transparent. They can see what the desires are on chain of what people are wanting to do before the actual confirmation in a uh, in a blockchain happens. And they're running ahead of that. And so this is actually so transparent that we want to hide it from being so transparent because of minor extractable value and stuff like that. And so... Um, yeah, how can we provide and educate as a community the transparency, the brilliance, the opportunities that blockchain, cryptocurrencies, and Web3 prep represent um, to regulators, governments, and, and have a voice against that? And ultimately, that's what we try to do with Truflation. How can we get it live, um, transparent, with the re relevant insights, um, that is just an alternative you can choose what you like if you don't believe it that's okay too but it's just an alternative where we're trying to really just put a calculation out there in a piece of software on chain that everybody can verify and audit and uh, approve and like or dislike at the same time as well so just giving you the right to choose yeah the, the power of being able to opt in opt out that's incredibly powerful this isn't being forced upon yeah. you it's an alternative yep. and it's something that, you know, obviously we would suggest, I mean, it's really simple. Just start using it. It doesn't have to be, you know, Ethereum. It could just be, you know, BSC yeah. or something, you know, just like $10 yeah. play around yep. with it and see, you know, get, get used to the experience of having your own funds in with your own private key, you know, cause you, you're going to have to get more used to that over time inevitably. And it'd be good <laughs> to get used to that. Um, I mean, there's UX things we need to solve wallets, D apps. It's still a, a little too much friction for like the average normie right. to use without getting stuck or frustrated, which is fair, but you know, it's all work in progress. It's not a finished product, but the, what our goals are, are fairly clear and um, you just kind of need to get past the speculation phase to more of the real world use cases, which I think just comes with time. We're testing the infrastructure. So uh, I think in, in, in this podcast, we, we talked about a lot <laughs> of different topics. Uh, it was interesting to, uh, learn more about Truflation and then discuss more of like the meta discussion about, you know, crypto itself versus Web2, which is always good to drive down the core value of like, why does any of this matter? Yeah. Um, wh wh where can people learn more about Truflation? Where can they learn more about you? Uh, what What's the best resources? So, yeah, um, Truflation.com and srus 99 on Twitter. Um, that's where I am at. And, and you can follow me there. Um, trueflation.com you can find all our social feeds our white paper our dashboard um, everything there um, and yeah I tweet quite a few things on, on Twitter share my opinions um, I love the fact that we now have uh, hopefully and we'll, we'll see you know the proof is always in the pudding but we have a promise of, of having a great platform that's going to allow freedom of speech for any type of speech as long as it doesn't hurt anybody and is not put to yeah so i think that's that's good and, and i'm excited to see how that path uh evolves as well
but that's where you can find me srust99 on twitter and check out trueflation.com perfect all right well i want to say thanks thanks for joining me Stephen, on this discussion and thanks uh, to all the listeners for tuning in and uh, learning more about how trueflation is going to actually bring uh, the the true rate of inflation and you know it'll expand and I'm I'm very excited for the personalized inflation dashboard I think that's a I think that's a great idea but uh, just yeah th- thanks for listening and have a good one everyone thank you CLG thank you everybody and and the audience for taking time out to listen to this.